backed by popular demand, an all questions episode next on Talking Cars. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Talking Cars. I'm Mike Quincy. I'm John Linko. And I'm Mike Monticello. So happy holidays, happy, happy July 4th. We're really pleased that you're spending some of your time off with us. And we've decided to devote an entire episode to a very special Talking Cars. Why is it special? Because we're on it. Well, we've got an orange shirt and we've got Mike and John here, which is awesome. But we are going to spend this entire episode just answering your questions and man, do we have some doozies. Uh, I'm gonna start kicking it off here. Uh, and some information that people want on the never-ending quest for SUVs. Specifically, the question reads, question for the team. I live in a neighborhood where parking is super limited. I'm tall, so I'm down to the Hyundai Kona or Nissan Kicks as a small SUV. Any thoughts on which would be better for city driving in the Northeast? Anybody want to jump in? Kona Kicks. Um, okay. Well, I'll say that the Kicks is designed as a vehicle that's a little more as a replacement for a Nissan Sentra driver, according to Nissan. Talking to them when the when the car was unveiled, it's um, it's front wheel drive only. You know, so it's for someone who just wants to sit a little higher, but still wants the the driving experience, the low weight, the probably the slightly better fuel economy. Uh, you know, and the economical experience of of a Nissan Sentra. So if you're looking for Northeast living, which involves snow, that may not be the best vehicle unless you're willing to invest in snow tires, depending on where you live. You know, you live in Vermont, probably not great with all seasons. Right. You live in Southern Connecticut, you could probably get around. So keep that in mind. So, so I mean, Mike, this is like another example of car companies saying, eh, we're not too much thinking about sedans. We want to sell more SUVs. Yeah. I mean, everyone seems to want SUVs. And of course, this is, uh, you know, the replacement for the, for the pretty funky looking juke. Mm -hmm. um, this thing isn't quite as wackily styled. Right. Um, it's a more usable, it seems. Yeah, but you know, the question about city city living in the Northeast immediately struck me. The fact that it, it's not available with all-wheel drive, that's you know, might I I would say point the person toward the Kona because you can get the Kona and all-wheel drive. That's the version we tested was all-wheel drive, um, and the Kona is a pretty good uh, little car actually. Uh, you know, handles pretty well. Um, it doesn't have a whole lot of power as uh, most vehicles in this class don't, this subcompact SUV class. Uh, but the, the kicks, keep in mind, we haven't driven it yet. Right, so it's, right. you know, we will buy one and we will test it. But when you're talking about underpowered, you know, the Kona, uh, the two liter four cylinder has 147 horsepower. The kicks is only going to have 125 horsepower. Right. Uh, so it's going to have even less power, but again, it might have pretty good fuel economy. We'll see. The engine could be torquier, you and, know, just in how it delivers it. So yeah, and, but and the city driving, maybe there's not so much need for, for, you know, heavy exactly, duty exactly. So that, that may not be a big deal. Something that struck out about for me with the kicks is that, uh, it comes with, uh, rear drum brakes as opposed to <laughs> disc brakes, like pretty much every other car in yeah. the world right now. Right. And again, probably not a huge deal for someone in the city. Uh, shouldn't be actually a big deal at all. Now, if you get outside the city and you go up a mountain and then are coming back down a mountain, that's when you might have, you might notice some difference. You know, drum brakes don't work as well uh, when, you know, uh, when they get heated up as a disc, as disc brakes. It looks funny on the vehicle when well, you like, you look at the rear of the car, what's wrong with the brakes? And when I, when I, when I saw the kicks and read about it, it kind of reminded me of our, our Toyota CHR. I mean, this is another kind of, 
you know, it's sort of a car, but it's sort of an SUV, but it's not all-wheel drive, and it's right. kind of funky looking. And uh, I, I know that in our evaluations, we weren't too impressed with the CHR. But uh, anyway, that being said, uh, yet another question on SUVs. It seems like they're uh, never-ending. Um, let's uh, switch gears a little bit, literally and figuratively, to a really interesting question that we got about uh, a fun-to-drive car with a manual transmission. Uh, Mike, Am I reading take, this one? Okay. take it away. So this question, uh, in the next year, I'll be graduating college. I'm a car enthusiast and want something fun to drive, reliable, has a manual transmission, and is under $50,000. I currently drive a 2017 Hyundai Elantra, but I'm ready to move up. I mean, there's a whole lot going on here. First of all, I love the fact that this person wants a manual transmission, wants a car that's fun to drive. Uh, so those points stood out for me. But uh, so what do we get? What do you guys got? I know what I what I would suggest. But what do you what do you suggest, John? Like you said, it, you know, there's a whole thing about saving manuals, but there are a lot of cars still available with one. Um, one that stands out, you know, fun to drive. It's been a, I think that the reliability is going to come with the with its second year WRX Subaru WRX will be really fun available with a manual. Um, the first gener first year had a little teething problems when it was brand new. Um, you have to wait a bit for our survey results to come out this fall, but that's a potential one. You know, you could pro you could get a uh, a BMW 2 Series. You can get yeah. uh, you know something you know that a, was a my pick. A couple, well, of, yeah, a couple was, of the Germans. My my pick was a, a BMW M240i. Uh, which is just under fifty thousand uh, dollars. Six-speed manual, three-liter twin-turbo inline-six cylinder. Uh, you know, so that's sweet. BMW inline-six, uh, three hundred thirty-five horsepower. Um, great handling. You know, uh, great seats. Right. Uh, a really precise shifter. You know, rear-wheel drive. I think. Uh, I think you really. I think you can't go wrong with that car. And if you're gonna, you know, if you if you can spend fifty thousand, I say. Blow the whole thing on, on the car as soon as you get out of college. That's yeah, what well, hopefully he's, maybe he's living with mom and dad. I did that. I, I graduated college and was able to get a, a brand new Audi A4 back well, in, you know, because yeah, I'm old the, back in 96. The person's in college right now and has a 2017 Hyundai Elantra. So yeah. Which like, is not a horrible like car. It's not like they're driving an old car. car. Cheap, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I love this question. It always seems like whenever we're on, we get at least one manual transmission question, which is like, yes. Um, but but I, had, I had a couple cars that you guys already mentioned. Uh, I, went, I went a little bit less expensive. I was thinking about the, the four-cylinder Honda Accord Sport, uh, which is a, a really nice car, fun to drive, good fuel economy. The Honda Civic Si, which we've talked about a number of times on this show. Um, uh, another one, a couple that if you go light on options, you could get an uh, Audi A4 Premium or a BMW 320i if you're looking for four doors with a manual transmission. But again, don't go crazy putting lots of options on it. I was kind of pleased to see that you could get into one of these, that they still offer manuals. Mm -hmm. uh, another, uh, a couple other ones that are a little crazy, uh, the Ford Mustang GT, hello, and uh, the Subaru BRZ and Toyota 86. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, I think you can't go wrong with those. Uh, you know, they just don't have a ton of power, but the handling, handling is awesome. Right. You know what I was looking at when I graduated from college? I, I, could, I didn't have $50,000 to spend. <laughs> oh, no, no. Was it a horse? No, well. It was another bicycle. No, no. I was looking at a, a used uh, Ford Mustang SVO oh. and a used uh, second-gen Toyota Supra. Awesome. Mm. And um, I, I ended up going with the Supra. But, awesome. Wow. Yeah. We love those. Okay, so um, that we, we could have spent the whole time on this one, but uh, we're going to move on to the next question. This is about seats. Uh, John, if you could do us the honors. Sure, sure, sure. Hi, CR. Can you give some insight into how you rate seat comfort? I know that you can factor in objective data, like the amount of available adjustments and physical dimensions, but how do you come up with the overall score? 
And I think what's great here is that we have actually one of our people who tests and evaluates seats, Mike here. So he's always sitting down at the job. Yes, uh, go yes. to one cleanse. <laughs> Even when he's not testing seats. Uh, yeah, and my review is coming up, unfortunately. Yes, it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, so. So uh, the, the, the short answer is that it's, it's a jury of, of uh, people that um, score the seats on every test car. And um, it's you know, usually around about seven people do the actual scoring. I'm one of those people that does the scoring. And you know, our, our body types range from short to medium uh, to, what do we call it, tall? To tall. To tall or <laughs> Something that you and I can't talk or about. perfectly but. sized for Formula One is what I call myself. There you go. Um, um, but so and so what we're doing is, you know, it's interesting because some of our testers, uh, you know, really like a lot of lower back support. Other testers prefer uh, a, like wide, generous seat, you know, so it, it, it really runs the gamut of, of body types of, of what they want in a seat. So and we combine all those scores, we average them and that comes up with the seat score. So it's not, you know, it's not just one person's opinion. It, it's a, it's uh, many people. And of course, then we also look at the logbook when, when uh, you know, uh, Ryan Pizlkowski actually writes the section of the tech report on seat comfort. And he looks at the logbook, sees what other people said about the seats as well. And all of that stuff is factored in. And that's how we come up with the seat score. And it's men and women, too. Men and women. You know, yeah. So and it's uh, unlike a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of other media where like one person's assigned a car or they get a test press car and it's the great seat or whatever. Um, like you said, we have a whole variety of people. Yeah, contributing but, to it. But the, but the truth is that regardless of what we think, uh, anyone out there you know, watching us right now, don't just take our words for it. I mean, you, you're, everybody's body is different. You're going to fit in the seats differently. Uh, so you, you certainly need to try them on before you just say, well, Consumer Reports says this seat is great, so I don't even have right, to try it. Right, you got to right. go sit in that well, car at the dealership for because sure. Because it does affect, I mean, everybody here, like you said, has a, has a complaint. There's seats I'm, I'm really unhappy with. I mean, I just got out of the Avalon this morning. And I'm I'm not a fan. I'm I'm not a fan of how you can't lower, you can't pan down the front of the of the right. uh, cushion, the lower the front of the of the bo bottom cushion, um, and to get a comfortable seating position for me, I'm almost up into the header. Right. You know, I think the Lincoln Continental and a lot of Lincolns are another example of seats that just didn't work for people. Right. I think I think with a Lincoln, it was kind of uni unanimously disliked by the staff. But I know you've gotten into some Mazdas. That uh, I think the CX-9 was yep. one, and maybe some others where because the, again their their front of the cushion, bottom cushion doesn't tilt up and down, it just didn't suit you at all. When right. you brought brought it back from the dealer, you're like, well, this car doesn't work for me, and I got in it, and it just happened to suit me fine. The way the position was of the lower cushion was fine for me, but it's not going to be fine for everybody. Right, and and it got us thinking about you know some some really particularly good seats or bad seats, and I was you know going through a, a quick mental list. I already mentioned the Audi A4. That was one of uh, the, the cars that I particularly like the seats. I fit in well. The Volvo S60, I thought the seats mm -hmm. were, were really good. Uh, some of the ones that were really horrible, you mentioned the CX-9, which I, which I really didn't like. Um, the Recaro seats that we tested in the Ford Focus ST and the Fiesta ST were a bit crazy uh, getting in the, and out of, but you, know, there uh, are, you, you guys got particular favorites, uh, li likes or dislikes? Well, you know, the Recaros, they're, they're, they're a super aggressive seat, um, and, and there's some that they run in the Cadillacs as well, and I think that a lot of it is just, it, it's, there's, there's a lot of things that are they're positioning safety, because the seat can't eject you into the header, you know, for the Federal Motor Vehicle Standard. Mm -hmm. um, it has to send you into the windshield if you're unrestrained so you can exit the vehicle. So there's a lot of things that go into the seat positioning. Right. Um, I agree with the fact that, again, I, like, I don't like this. 
you know, or you know, a vertical. I like to have it down. You mean you're talking about the bottom cushion? The bottom And I think cushion. that's the problem with those Recaros in, exactly. in the Ford Focus so I, ST and RS. They're just it, uncompromised. Yeah. It, it's uncompromising. When I think of bad seats, I think of the Chevrolet Bolt. I really don't like those seats at all. Mm -hmm. uh, was disappointed with the seats in the BMW X1. They put different seats in the X2, so those seats worked much better. You know what? I the seats I really liked recently was the Honda Civic uh, Type R. The, it has these crazy bolstered seats. Mm -hmm. It's a little hard to get in and out of, but once you're in, yeah. they're super comfortable yet super, you know, great support all around you. And they have this kind of like suede material, so it holds you in place really well and it's comfortable. I was surprising that a, a seat that aggressive could also be that comfortable. You know, one thing to jump in, I, you know, I mentioned the Lincolns. I think it, what's horrible is that with the Lincoln seats is that they're less comfortable in the Navigator than the seats in the Ford Expedition, right. which seem to be a little more yeah. F-150 type. You know, they're, they're broad enough, but they're bolstered well, but they have a lot of adjustments. The Lincoln, an $80,000 SUV, has the base seat that you has only limited adjustments. Then even the Continental that we tested, we had an up-level seat package, and they still weren't comfortable for many right. people. So right. it's, it's, that's why, like you said, Try, try, try. Right. Yes. And, and it, everyone has different opinions on seats. We could, again, we could talk about this we could. for hours. Um, but it's such a critical part of your buying decision. Okay, moving on to the next, uh, another, uh, yet another question on SUVs, specifically some smaller models with a third row seat. Hello, mm -hmm. Talking Cars. Why have all the compact SUVs shed the third row option? Is it a really dramatic increase in price or packaging difficulty? I'd like to get my family into a larger, more capable vehicle, but I'm not ready to commit to the midsize SUV class. John, you have some um, some advice for this person. You know, I find it interesting because I think a lot of there's actually a little a greater number of small SUVs, compact SUVs in our our uh, rating schedule system that do have a seat. So you have a Tiguan, the Volkswagen Tiguan has it available um, with both all-wheel drive and uh, front-wheel drive. You could get it in the. Um, uh, Nissan Rogue. Thank goodness. Yeah. Nissan Rogue. Thank you very <laughs> much. That's what I'm here for. Like Monticello for the Blank save. Tommy. Blank Tommy. <laughs> and, and one of the Mitsubishi Outlanders. And the problem is that they're very small. Uh, they're jump seats, basically. They're very limited use. Um, they also add weight. They add a bit of complexity. You know, the weight is going to hurt fuel economy. It's also going to hurt packaging. So, you know, can you, can you, they fit it in with all-wheel drive systems, you know, because these are all primarily front-wheel drive-based vehicles. So can they fit that in so that it actually fits the person, restrains them properly, gives them a foot room? And, and it's, a, it's a big compromise. It used to be just really the Toyota RAV4 uh, for a long while, and that was optional and very hard to get. Um, so if you go into it looking at that perspective and that it's a jump seat, you know, those are some options there. Uh, you know, you don't want to move up to a Kia Sorento, which has a standard third row now. You don't want to get even bigger, you know, like a Toyota Highlander. Totally understand. These are kind of your options, and that, that, those are the reasons you're not seeing and it. And I think if, uh, you know, the manufacturers listen to what the customers are telling them, and if the customers were telling them, you know, if so many customers are coming and saying, why doesn't this, you know, compact SUV have a third row, then right. they would put more third rows in. But clearly people, you know, if... If they get one with a third row, they use it every once in a great while, and then they probably realize, I don't even need this. You well, it's yeah. interesting because Toyota dropped the right. third row seat right. in the uh, 2013 redesign of the RAV4. Yep. So, I mean, they, Toyota doesn't do things, you know, foolishly or offhand. So. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, they, they, they put more investing in space for a hybrid powertrain right. than they wanted for third row. And, right. you know, sometimes it's artificial take rates. Well, it's only available on the base model, and we don't right. really sell a lot of base right. models, but we right. didn't sell a lot of seats. You know, it's it's chicken and egg in that respect. Right, sure. 
Thanks for that question. Please keep them coming. Uh, send us everything to uh, talkingcars at iCloud.com. That's talkingcars at iCloud.com. Your videos, your text, all these questions are awesome. And uh, that's going to bring us to our next one. And this is from a previous episode of Talking Cars. Uh, we had a lot of comments about the Hyundai Veloster. The comment is, and it's really not a question much, as much as a comment. While you were discussing the Veloster, I heard calls for more speed and a louder exhaust but you never mentioned the forthcoming Veloster N. It provides both, as well as improved handling and driving dynamics. Fair point. It's we a didn't fair point. really talk it's, about the yeah. N, but we haven't driven the N. True, true. And I, you know, I would also say that you know, when you look at the, the one that we rented, uh, the Veloster, the new Veloster Turbo, uh, you know, it's a pretty aggressive looking car. And so uh, you know, when you get into it, um, you're thinking it's gonna uh, be a certain way. And I actually thought the power was pretty good, but I do agree. The engine didn't sound like much, and, and I would have preferred, uh, you know, some exhaust crackle. And admittedly, you know, like Hyundai said, that's going to be coming. They, that, you know, uh, uh, they said this, this Veloster N is going to sound really good, have this great exhaust note. But why shouldn't you have it on uh, the Veloster Turbo as well? I mean, you know. Right. It's not like you're asking the base model. To, right. to sound like right. a race car. You know, right. the SI, the Civic SI, Honda Civic SI has a bit of a, you know, a burble. Right. You don't have to go at the Honda Civic Type R. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't have to go on the BMW uh, X3. You don't have to go all the way up to the M40i. You can get a little bit of sportiness on, on the regular X3. So it, that's, I think, what we were looking for is like, you know, gradual steps. And it didn't really feel any different from a base engine. There wasn't a bit of a throatiness. Right. You shouldn't have to go to a Type N Type R, type AMG, take some S4. A letter of the alphabet and put it at the right end. To, to get a bit of a of a sporting, especially when there's yeah. a sport button, right. you know, and there's a sport mode. Right. Yeah, I, I I immediately put it into sport mode, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to sound really good, and it sounded okay. It's okay, right? You know, just okay. not. I I agree. You know, I don't. You know, it's it could it could be a little bit better. It was, it was a fair comment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, good good on you to point it out, and uh, you're right. But we'll we'll have some information when we get some time with the end because. Uh, probably going to be pretty entertaining. Yeah. And uh, that will take us to our next comment. And I wrote comment in my notes and in air quotes here. Uh, the comment is about how long it should take uh, for people to learn uh, the car's controls and other nuances. And uh, Mike, could you please take it away? Sure. Uh, this person says, I hate it when auto journalists who drive 100 different cars a year complain about the learning curve of each new car. It's a problem specific to your job and not one that consumers care about. Uh, now, John, I assume this person is talking about both um, shifter issues that we have and more importantly, infotainment, infotainment systems. Infotainment systems yeah. When we say something's unintuitive, is that that's what they're... I'm guessing it's probably also a recent question from the Acura RDX, which oh. we just took mm -hmm. delivery of, and it has a convoluted uh, touchpad uh, system for the infotainment system. Um, you know, this isn't a matter of I couldn't find the headlight switch, so it's awful. Um, it's not a matter of you know I wish really wish they pushed the the seat controls somewhere else because they're you know they're on the door and they should be down here. You know, we're looking at it as across the whole spectrum of what works and what doesn't work. You know, and over time things evolve. You know, touch screens. We, you know, we we at times we weren't a big fan of touch screens because we would rather just have the physical controls. We they're they were confusing. And some of the early touch screens that a lot of other journalists and people came out and said, "Oh, it's so great. Oh my god, my Ford Touch is fantastic." You know, and it's the same type of thing with other cars. The Ford Taurus is fantastic when it came out and my Ford Touch blah blah. A couple months or even a year later like, "Oh, well the trunk's small and it's a big car with no space." 
you know, people jump on it in reviews and they right. love it and well, they love it because it's new. Think, think but, about all the evolutions the BMW's iDrive mm -hmm. uh, infotainment system has gone through from the beginning. When it first came out, it was terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. It was terrible. And it's taken mm -hmm. a long time to get it to the point that now it's actually, you know, it actually works pretty well. Right, right. But it doesn't it was require not, that curve. It was not great from the beginning. And so, you know, but the real thing here is the reason why we talk about these infotainment systems being confusing or hard to use or whatever is when they require eyes away from the road time. You know, like I just recently drove our Volvo XC60 down to Washington, D.C. and back. And you know it's it's the infotainment system. You're doing a lot of swiping back and forth to get the different screens. Right. Um, and that's you know I know where the stuff is, but I'm still requiring me to do some swiping and some pressing and right. some all this, which requires my eyes over here when it should be over here. And that's that's the problem. Well, you know, and then one of the things that Acura is that Honda has been moving away from kind of convoluted either two screen systems or touch capacity. They're moving quickly into some really good, very decent, but good systems in, their, in the Hondas. Now all of a sudden Acura comes out and has totally blown it up and gone the, the Lexus route with remote right. controls and right. stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it takes a lot of eye time off. You know, it's a high learning curve. Sure, we even say that in a lot of cars. We say in BMWs, we say in Audis, it has a steep learning curve, That's but true. once mastered, right. Right. it's pretty, uh, pretty makes, it makes a lot of sense. But right. there's other ones like the Mercedes-Benz command system. It was baffling to begin with, and they've gone overboard making it baffling down the road. And we, like the person says, we drive 100 cars a year, mm -hmm. certainly, but we drive a lot of Mercedes, and we own them for a long time. So four months, five months, six months later, it's still confusing. Right. right. It's right. not and like we drove it for a day and said, oh, yeah, it's bad. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, Mike, about the Volvo. The, the, the system is, is simply awful. I mean, we, we certainly can't be the only journalists It doesn't bother me as that, much. That, that, that have issues with it. Because, it looks I mean, cool. That's the thing is the system looks cool, right, but, and, it's, and it's trying to be like your phone or your tablet. Yeah. That's but, what but it's the, trying to be like. Think, think about what Ford did with my Ford Touch. They dumped it. They dropped it. Yeah. They said, you know, it's just not working. Yeah. We didn't Let's get it. start we didn't get, over. We didn't get it right. And they started yeah. over. Right. Yeah. And and now the Sync Three system is really good. Yeah. So and you Cadillac know. has tried to improve Q. It, it's infinitesimally better, but it's still not great. Right. And, and you know each each generation there's a little bit of improvement, but it hasn't matched U Connect from uh, uh, Fiat Chrysler, and it hasn't matched uh, Sync Three. So. Right. So, so we, we criticize systems sometimes. We do say they, they require a learning curve. It's not without substance. Uh, but, but again, the question is, how will the next generations of these troubled systems you know, evolve? Well, you know, one other thing is, I, when they says about, you know, it's not something that normal, uh, that normal consumers care about. You shouldn't have to force yourself into something convoluted to compensate for the system. You know, it shouldn't be that this controls way down here and you have to reach down and get it. And everyone goes, well, I'll get it and I'll do that. No, we want something that's straightforward. And like Mike said, keeps your eyes on the road more than working around. Workarounds aren't great for I, for I really driving. think, uh, you know, the, the systems, quite often the systems that work the worst, if that's proper English, which I don't think it is, uh, are the ones that, that you have a master's are, in English. Are the ones that... Um, <laughs> Are the flashiest to look at, yeah. and I think that's the problem. They try and you know put all this pizzazz into these systems, and then when you look at like Hyundai, Kia, uh, Uconnect, those systems aren't flashy at all. Right, yeah. but they, they work, work really solid. well. Yeah, you know? it, it, it went well in a conference room at some auto company that somebody. It looked. They look cool. Hey, yeah. Those systems look really cool. But it's not the same as, as yeah. regular regular day-to-day right. uh, -day operation. Uh, finally, we've got time for uh, for one more question about. Wait for it. A 1991 Dodge Daytona 
John, do us the honors. I am looking to get a 1991 Dodge Daytona with about 120,000 miles on it. Since you don't have anything on your website about it, do you have any personal experience or reliability information on this car? I know Andrew liked this question, so I think he actually maybe owned one. Um, I looked at one. Uh, I, looked, your I looked at an earlier Daytona. Um, it, it was probably mid-'80s. Um, it was a big car with not a lot of room. Um, turbo engine, and I'm glad I... I'm just glad I went away from that because I also looked at other cars that had turbos back then. I looked at a nine. Uh, I looked at a uh, uh, an Audi, and I, I think I looked at, at something something else from Mazda, and I avoided yep. any '80s turbos. But you know, I, problems. But you looked at this car because yeah. it was cool looking, right? The Dodge Daytona, especially the Turbo Z. Or right. I mean, Mine it was, was a Shelby. It was kind of. It was yeah. It was kind of a cool looking yeah. car. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and pic pictured here are the uh, 1990 and 1992 versions were, were just about identical to the to the 1991. Uh, that's the subject of the question. And you mentioned the the, the Turbo Z. Yeah. You could also get an IROC version yeah, there of was the day international yeah. race of champions. You could put it right yeah. next to your Camaro IROC. Right. Um, uh, you know, very 80s look. The hatchback, right. kind of angular, uh, yeah. a lot of glass area. But but so guess what. Me and Mike Quincy did yesterday. We actually were like, well, okay, we don't know how reliable this car was. We could have we could have guessed. But we went back into our files and looked back at, you know, Consumer Reports data on reliability of this car, and, and it was not good. It was yeah. not good. Yeah. So 120,000 miles on the clock. Um, uh, I'm, I think if you're looking for a classic car, I think I'd I'd say looking. buy it for the nostalgia. Don't buy it for the driving. Take it if it's free. Yeah. <laughs> free. Yeah. You know, if it's free, it's free, and you know, you could save some money towards repairs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's. They were pretty. It's had, its, it's had its time. They were pretty lousy cars back then, and they're probably pretty lousy now. Sorry. Well, anyway, that, that's going to about uh, do it for this episode of Talking Cars. Uh, as always, check the show notes for more information on the cars or the topics that we talked about. We really appreciate you tuning in. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. I'm Mike Quincy. I'm Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's I'm Jen Stockburger. That's what you're supposed to say if you say I'm the thinking, wrong name. I hope Mike Monticello doesn't go, so I said Mike. <laughs>